everybody. Welcome back to the Inner Call Podcast. My name is Fleur. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. I know you want to live a more intuitive life, which is why you are listening to this podcast. And my guest today, the second part of Eliza Van Court's interview, is going to help you do that. If you missed last week's part one, I would say go back, listen, and then come back for this lovely episode. But today we are jumping into some of the more personal experiences that Eliza's had in her quest to take up space, to own her own truth. And one of those discussion points that we talk about today is her experience with a mom who suffered from mental illness. Now, the reason I was so interested in this is because I've seen this in clients' lives, in friends, families' lives, that when you are living with someone who has mental illness, who is not really living in the same world as you, who's living in a sense of delusion or fantasy or a sense of not knowing what reality is. I was curious, you know, when she's been living in that space for herself, how did she find her own truth? And the reason I wanted to ask, because I think that's one of the hardest situations to be put through as a child to have that sense of reality be so questioned. So if she could find her own truth and take up that space and find her own inner wisdom within a space of chaos, then I feel we can all learn from that. So we go quite in depth today in that discussion of her personal experience, as well as my personal experiences of taking up space and what that looks like for me in day to day. So today, this episode I think is a very vulnerable one for both of us. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I know I learned a lot from my time with Eliza Van Court. I'm very grateful that she came on the podcast and I would definitely suggest you check out her podcast and her book, which is all about taking up space, which is so necessary for an intuitive life. As you know, you've heard me say it many times on this podcast, we are absolutely in need of hearing internal feedback over external feedback in order to be intuitive. You simply cannot find that intuition if you don't hear the internal feedback over the noise of the external, which means you got to take up some space, right? It takes some space to hear that internal feedback. You got to make room for yourself. You got to take up space in the world to push that external feedback to the side just a little bit in order to hear your own voice. So I wish that for every single one of you. Enjoy today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to leave me a review and let me know what you loved about this one. So, you know, we've touched on it a little bit in the beginning, this idea of claiming space and having to do it together. I think from a certain lens, you could look at that as almost an oxymoron, if you will, right? Like this idea of like, I want to take up space, Mm. which is mine. But then in order to do it, I have to do it with others, which one could look at as like a competition of space. So I would love to hear more on that. Well, on a really fundamental level, my father, who was a child of the 60s, used to always quote the Beatles, (laughs) which is the love you take is equal to the love you make. And he would always say to me, it's not a pie, Eliza. Love is not a pie. And it's not a pie. And so I think if you think of love as abundance, if you think of space as abundance, then it's really different than if you think if I get it or if they get it, there's less, you know? That's the first thing. The second thing is 
I'm a feminist. I believe that women should have equal rights and opportunities. I feel like anyone who isn't a feminist has to maybe examine why they don't think women should have equal rights and opportunities. <laughs> so, you know, it seems like kind of a basic human right. So for me, feminism has had a really poor history in terms of how we've treated women of color. In fact, we have often advanced at their expense. And we've done something I call trickle-down feminism, where we're like, oh, if we just break the glass ceiling, then all of our power will trickle down to everybody else. We'll just get in that boardroom and then the woman who's working in the grocery store will be great. And you know, trickle-down feminism doesn't work. And the reality is that we are half the population, but people who are working, women who are working class, women of color, a lot of women do not trust feminism because of our history of not really caring about what's going on with them compared to caring about the glass ceiling. And so I think for me, we have the chance to really make fundamental change in the world that's really beautiful and positive. You know, they've done research that when women are in positions of power, they raise up children. You know, it's just so systemic. And so I think for me, if we are going to really claim space, we can't be thinking about ourselves only. I really believe from the bottom of my heart that when we rise together, we rise so much higher. Mm, I agree with you from the bottom of my heart too. And it's true. You see it over and over and over again. It's like, it is more powerful to stand in union like that. And also to realize that when we're in our own alignment and we're going for it, like you're not taking anything from anyone. There's so much to go around. No, absolutely. And men have always been really good at that. I mean, men just sit there and they're like, hey, here's my card. How can I help you? What can I do? Let's pull each other up. And because women have been like the one and they feel this feeling of scarcity, like, oh, if you come up to where I am, then I have to leave. We really have gone about things from a place of scarcity, not abundance. And that has really held us back. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Going back also to what you spoke about in your your initial moments of taking up space. I have lived a life in which I've seen people struggle with mental illness. I've been around them and have worked with a lot of clients who have family that have mental illness. And sometimes it's hard for those people to feel like they can trust themselves because they've watched somebody else seem to live a life of delusion, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And so I am curious on that from your own experience, because it sounds like you've claimed your space. You have ups and downs like we all do, but you got your toolbox. You've got your trust in self. I'm wondering what your journey's been with that to really have to ground trust in your own mental power, your own intuition, even what might be slightly different, that it's, that it's not delusional right? Okay. I have to say that you're asking some questions that no one ever asks and they're so on the nose. So, <laughs> whoa, I wasn't ready for that question. <laughs> yeah. You, you just hit it like bam bullseye. For me, when you have a mother who is trustworthy and loving and kind, and then suddenly she's saying chariots are flying over your head and you're going to Egypt and you're the child of Jesus and you're Chinese and then you're Native American and then you're in an ashram, you know, your reality is just flipped on its head. And it's very, and that's the person who you look to for reality. So when you've had that experience, you have to convince yourself that crazy is sane. 
to survive. You know, mm-hmm. so I had to convince myself when my mom and I were going across the country, this is normal. It's completely normal to go to a Native American reservation and, and believe that you're Native American. All of these things are normal because if I didn't, I would have to admit to myself, I was in terrible, terrible, terrible danger. And so I think for me throughout my life, one of my big challenges has been, I can trust my reality. Because for a long time, I didn't trust reality because the reality that I had was upside down, backwards, and terrifying. Mm. So yes, absolutely. That when you deal with someone who's mentally ill, I think trusting your own reality is a lifelong yeah. struggle. Well, because I think it speaks to a lot of smaller or perhaps less severe examples of this being in a relationship where you're gaslit, being in any kind of situation where somebody's telling you like, no, that's not the way it is, you know, which, which I mean, inherently is our society anyways, right? Like we have this internal truth and then the rest of the world's like, what are you talking about? Like, you should shrink or right. like, that's not permissible right, right. or whatever. So like you've, you've experienced it on like a very severe, what is true, but I think everyone experiences it to some degree in their desire to live a very truthful life. And so I feel like you have such a power to speak to it because you've had to do it on such a mega level, that sense of safety. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, interestingly enough, within, I'm not going to say how recently, because I don't want to call the person out, but within the last, let's say, 10 years since my divorce, I dated someone who turned out to be a sociopath. Like I, I would hear people say, my ex-boyfriend's a sociopath. And I'd say, okay, really? Were they really though? Because everybody thinks their ex-boyfriend's a narcissist or a sociopath or their ex-girlfriend or their ex-partner. That's just like, we're all mad, you know, and it's fair and it's normal. But this person really was doing what I call reality bending, just sort of like, hey, let's get reality and just, and it was really easy for me to fall into believing the crazy because of my past. And it wasn't until it got very extreme that I went, oh my God, how did I land here? What is happening? And, you know, it was a shocker because I'd done so much work. I'd done so much therapy. And actually, you know, part of it was starting to do a lot of writing about claiming space and really realizing I was writing about the stuff I was struggling with. And eventually I had to get out of the relationship. But, you know, if you've had that experience, it is so easy to fall back into those patterns. And since that, I have had to be so viscerally careful. And the person who I'm with now, my partner, who I just adore, Dan, wonderful, is he, he, he doesn't mind me saying this, even though we joke that he's not sure he's on the spectrum, but we always, I'm like, you're on the spectrum. And then his family's like, hmm. So we have kind of an ongoing joke and I, it's pretty clear he's on the spectrum. And now he's sort of coming to grips with the fact that, oh yeah. And I love it. I love it because he is so literal about everything. He just mm. says the truth. He doesn't, you know, he, he has a hard time with platitudes and all of those things where you're supposed to, you know, oh, I'm fine or whatever. He's, Why would people say that if it's not true? So I've never met somebody who is more, except for clients I work with who are on the spectrum, more straightforward, more like the, the, the integrity is huge. And for me, the, I think 
you know, the world can kind of react negatively to that because we're so used to all of these platitudes and softeners. But I actually think the world would be a lot better if we could all be more straightforward with each other. I think it would just make everyone not have to worry if what was being said was really what was meant. Mm, that is so true. I think that really throws off people's internal compass, to be honest, because like I said, you experienced it to the extreme, but I think parents can be very well-meaning and their kids are like, hey, I feel like maybe you and dad are fighting or we've got financial strain or whatever. And then the parents are like, no, 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 all is fine. So you're already starting to create this discord between, well, what I'm internally feeling is X and what you're telling me is Y and therefore I can't trust myself. Yeah. You know, like from a very young age. And again, you experienced it in a mega way, but it's so, so a part of our society. Totally. I mean, I have four kids. I have my nephew, my two sons, and my daughter. And, you know, there are a lot of times where I would say, everything's fine. And in hindsight, I'm like, mm, maybe I shouldn't have said it was all fine. But you have that instinct to protect your child. And when you love your child, you just don't want them to hurt. And so you kind of try to set up a little cone of safety around them and not have them worry. And I think to a certain extent, parents should do that. They shouldn't be saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get my mortgage paid. But the weird disconnect with that is that the kid senses that you're worried about something. So it does make them have this feeling of non-reality. Yeah. And I can't speak to it because I don't have kids, but it's been an interesting observation when I start looking at, okay, where did the disconnect start for a lot of people? It's kind of in that in very beginning phase. And I do feel like it's, it's quite the conversation as to like, how do you carry the emotion, but are still very real with what's going on? I can't even begin to start that conversation because I don't have children. It's a, it's a complicated one, I'm sure. I think it's a lifelong thing for everyone in every aspect of our lives. How do you make sure you're tuning into your emotion without letting your emotion rule you? Mm. It's hard. Yeah. What if, what if you found, personally, I found breath work for me is, is very helpful to teach my nervous system that I can hold the emotion has been epic. Have you, have you found tools? One of my former students, Rhea Burns Wilder, who's wonderful. She's just, her whole job is going out and giving people these wonderful experiences. And she talks a lot about breath work. And I guess for me, because of my training, the thing that I have the hardest time with because I had to spend a lot of energy telling myself things were okay when they weren't. So it's really hard for me to acknowledge when they're not okay. And I think for me, learning to name the feeling, just name the feeling, just say, wow, I'm scared, or I'm angry, or I'm not sure how I feel, something feels off. That is the best step for me. And I have a three-step process where I go feel, then I go think, then I go act. <laughs> and if I do feel, think, act out of order, things don't go well at all. They go very badly. Mm. Oh, I love that. Okay, so you're you're acknowledging the feeling, like I'm feeling distressed or angry. And then the thinking part is the same or the identification of it mm -hmm. is what you're saying. Like you're you're actually feeling the distress in your body, you're thinking, and then the action is based on the acknowledgement of what you first felt and identified. Yeah. So I think the as. first thing would be let's I'm always gonna use the most extreme example because it resonates but bias. So, you know, I see somebody of a race that I don't, I've been trained not to trust. And I think, don't trust them, untrustworthy. And I go, I'm scared. 
And then I think, huh, is there something really scary here? I'm going to think about that feeling. Actually, there's nothing to be scared of here. This is really about me. Okay, so how I'm going to act. I'm not going to grab my purse and walk across the street because that would be me being reactive to an emotion that isn't coming from a place that I really need to attend to. I can just understand it, think about it, and then act differently or act the same way. Like if you're in love with someone and you think, oh God, I'm in love. Oh no. Then you have to think, well, do they love me back? Do What do I want to do? And then you take the action. But if you deny you're in love, you can lose love and you know it doesn't always go well. So it goes both ways, the beautiful, positive emotions as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it's a beautiful process and I'm grateful that you spelled it out because a big part of this is also giving people different tools. I don't think everything works for every person. So it's always really nice to hope that somebody is listening to this and being like, I'm going to try that, you know, I'm going to like, because it's simple. So in a way it's, it's one of those like very simple techniques that's actually very potentially difficult to practice on a daily basis. Yeah, it's particularly hard for me because I have ADHD. So I tend to act, think, and then realize what I felt. <laughs> and I, oh mm. no, I did it out of order. So it's really important for me to not act. My aunt always says, our family's motto is act first, think later, or something like that. We try not to, but you know. Very difficult in practice. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. But it's we're all a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. When you are putting this work out into the world and you're teaching people how to take up space, what do you feel like has been the most common feedback? Like how are you witnessing people changing by taking up more space? I think that what I've seen more and more, and it's it's actually been one of the, I always try not to cry when I talk about this, is women believing they deserve more. I, I had this one woman who had been in a shelter for domestic abuse. She turned her life around. And after she read my book, she said, I wish I'd had your book when all this was going down. I sent a copy to every woman that helped me at the shelter and every room in the shelter because it helped me so much afterwards be able to believe I deserved what I deserved. So, you know, I, and I've had women, a woman who I met on TikTok left an abusive marriage. My favorite example is there was a woman right when my book came out who contacted me on TikTok and said, I can't afford your book. And I said, well, let me send it to you. And she said, well, I can't let you send it to me because if I send it, if you send it to me, my husband will find out and he'll get angry. So we had to coordinate when I would have it delivered to her house. She lived overseas. I'm not going to say any details, but, and then like a year and a half later, she contacts me and says, I want you to know I moved to New York city. I got out of my marriage. Your book is my Bible. Thank you so much. I'm just going to cry. And it's just, it's one of those beautiful things where you think, you know what, this is what makes it all worth it. And it, it goes, I mean, those are the extreme examples. There are, of course, also women who say, I asked for a raise. <laughs> I, you know, I, I went and I asked a guy or a woman on a date that I would have never done before because I felt like, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? So, you know, I think it's that really giving people agency to believe that they have the right to claim their space and to take risks in this life because we only live one time. Mm. It's there was a quote that I wrote from your book that I really liked, which was to claim space is to never apologize for being the rule breaking, rule making badass superhero that you are. Not once, not ever. And I really like that. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, Ooh, I'm playing small, or like, 
I am that person in an abusive marriage. I don't believe I deserve more. I don't trust myself enough to take the next step forward. Where do they start? Well, if you're in an abusive marriage, you should really, there's a little tiny part of my book where I give resources of where you can call. My book is not going to be able to protect you, but there are places that you can call that will protect you. And so those resources, my book is, you know, guidebook. It's full of resources from everything from posture to imposter syndrome to, you know, <laughs> setting boundaries at work. So you can certainly Google that stuff. But the thing that I really do like about my book, and I think it's a really wonderful tool for women, is two things. One, it just breaks down claiming space to five parts. And if you want, I can just tell you them very, very briefly. So the first is claiming space with your physicality and your voice, making sure you're not making yourself small. You know, The second thing is claiming space by building community. And that also includes getting anti-mentors out of your life who would make you feel small. The next one is claiming space by not letting your past control your present. So people often say to me, you know, you should just get over stuff. People need to get over stuff. I don't think that's true. I think that we don't get over anything. I think that we have these boulders in our lives that are so painful, but if we're mindful, we can get them smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually they're like a little pebble in our pocket and we can carry them with us and say, oh, I survived this. I'm going to be okay. Look what I learned. Look how strong I am. So it's not like we get rid of them, but there are lessons. The next one is protect yourself from abusers. And the final one is claiming space intersectionally. If you reach out and are with women who don't look like you, who are from a different demographic than you, you will learn so much. And I think the women that I saw were really good at claiming space we're really good at intersectional feminism, really caring about women who didn't look like them. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. I like that it starts off with posture and voice because it's a small thing, but seemingly, but, but big. And I think can sometimes be jarring. It, it reminds me, I was, I was at a party with two days ago. I, I'm in interaction with this person and I shake their hand. And the response was, ooh, strong handshake. <laughs> and then, and it really took me by surprise because I had a moment I was like, oh, like, I, I guess so. I mean, I don't know, you know. As like, compared sure. to what? <laughs> but I had the best conversation with a woman who laughed and she said, you know, that reminds me, I worked as a lawyer in maritime for a long time. And I was my first case and I shook the hand of this man and his response was, my God, girl, if you shake every man's hand like that, you'll never be married. And we just had this like interaction as to how we have been made to feel smaller and just that conversation. It was so nice to have this interaction with someone go, ooh, firm handshake. And then this woman be like, shake that hand. Do you know? <laughs> like, Yes. But what I love about that story more than anything, which I just love, is that that was two different ways of claiming space that happened in concert. First, you did it with your physicality and actually talk about handshakes in the book. And secondly, another woman was there and was right with you as an ally. And that is really, that was critical for you. That's a huge part of your story. And that's what we need to be doing more of. It's creating space for other women to take chances and claim space together. That's, I just love that story. It makes me so happy. 
Yeah. I was like, oh, that fits right in because it was true. It was like a moment of, oh, wait, what? And then this other woman just like stepped right in, was like, nah, girl, you got this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was lovely. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight to speak to you. I think you've got amazing perspective on all of this. And it sounds like your book's changing lives. So I'm grateful that it's out there. Is there any last thing that you want to share with people as to how they can take up more space or what you're trying to put out into the world? Yeah, I guess the last thing I would say is believe you have the right to claim space. You can't do any of the tools in my book unless you have the, the belief that you have the right to do them. We're 50% of the population. We should be claiming 50% of the space. Mm, yeah, that's true. More than 50%, right? We're like 51%. Take it yeah, we're a now. little more. Oh, we're a little bit know. more. Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it, and it was it was a great conversation. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you. You asked such wonderful questions. I love it. Well, thank you. Okay, you take care. You take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Don't forget, subscribe. If you are one of the people that listen to our podcast and we actually got stats back, like 70% of you listen and you're not subscribed and it would just be the best gift to subscribe. So click that little button so that you can be a subscriber. You can be an innie at the Intercall Podcast versus an Audi. Come be an innie at the Intercall Podcast. So subscribe. We would really appreciate it so that we can bring more guests, bigger guests, Guests you love, thanks for being here.